You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. We got nominated for an Emmy last year, which is huge. And um, I'm aiming to get nominated for another award with a feature film that will come out this fall. But at what point do you feel satisfied or feel like you've reached success? And I think that um, it's I've gone through some really, really challenging times in the last few years, really low times. And I don't really feel like I'm much of a success. So in order to feel like you are doing something productive and useful with your life, I've come to realize, look, I've just got to appreciate the daily moments and the hidden experiences that don't get on camera and the amazing conversations that you have with people and and the ripple effects that you will never see. That was Fiona Dawson. She joined me on this episode of Productive Flourishing, and we discussed her journey as she came out as a bisexual after identifying herself as a lesbian. It's more controversial than you'd think and her work with Trans Military. Her work at Trans Military culminated in the Emmy-nominated documentary, Transgender, at War and in Love, and she was honored by President Obama as an LGBT artist champion of change. And yet, as you heard, she still wonders whether and if she'll be a success. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, from the not-so-secret dynamics of the LGBTQ community to the role the military plays in social change, to the way we hold ourselves back from doing what we know is right for us. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Fiona, thanks so much for joining me on the Productive Flourishing Podcast. Um, I'm super excited to talk to you for so many different reasons. And I just have to say, your energy is so infectious. I'm sure people tell you this a lot, but I just want to smile and laugh. And I'm like, are we going to go for a dance or something? Um, so thanks for bringing that to the show today. I hope so. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm so pleased that it kind of somehow oozes through the, the video yeah, as well. You know, as I was doing the research, um, you know, you were introduced by another guest. And as I was doing the research, when I went into it, I actually expected... Um, you to be much more serious, much more somber. And then I started doing the research and watching the videos. I was like, oh, this is different. Um, and not in a, not in like a bad way, but it's like, and so then I had sort of this um, questioning my assumptions and, and what I was, what I was bringing to the conversation, which actually frames this episode really, really well, because it's about the frames and boxes in which we put people in just based upon their topic, based upon like how we're introduced. And it's, um, it's really, a, I would go as far as to say, it's a really a shame how much we pre pre label and prejudge people just on a few words, you know? 
Yeah, no, you're you're right, actually. And it, it, when I first started um, my endeavors for wanting to create media, um, I used to describe it as I wanted to make a show where you would take a topic that normally you would see on PBS, but um, I would present it in a fashion that would relate to Dog the Bounty Hunter or Jersey Shore. So I'm so delighted as well that you kind of noticed that because you know that's what I'm trying to do is to make topics that might seem dry or boring or like very rigid um, but make them entertaining engaging and inspiring Absolutely. and um, it's fitting with what you're doing but um, I was really intrigued because you have a very unusual trajectory okay so um, <laughs> you were born in the UK and you moved to the United States and became an advocate of all things for trans uh, for trans identity personnel in the military, in the United States military. So from the UK to the US, then military. And so there's just a lot going on there. So tell us a story about why you decided to move from the UK to the States in the first place. Yeah. Well, yes, I would love to say that when I was six years old, I imagined that I would be advocating for trans people in the military. But of course, that's not the case. Um, but I have always grown up wanting to save the world, quote unquote. And so when I graduated university, I went to Bangladesh to volunteer. And while I was over there, I met and fell in love with a U.S. Marine. And uh, we started dating. And um, in 2000, we decided to get married. And that's how I ended up in the U.S., in Houston, Texas. So um, I don't know how and why really the U.S. military has become such an important part of my life. Um, it's just random, you know, that my ex-husband, you know, was a Marine. Um, but yeah, that's that's how I ended up here. And, and I love Houston because it's hot and cheap. And so I ended up um, staying there, even though, you know, the marriage ended because uh, I was having such a great time, just felt like I was at home there. Yeah, well, I mean, you're approaching the military from a from a different perspective than mine. I'm I'm approaching as a vet, as you know, my my military service in that way. And so, um, I think yeah. we share um, we share some views and perspectives about why the U.S. military is important, but we're coming to it from different angles, which is really fantastic. Um, and before we jump in to talk really about your work with trans military, um, I was doing the research and I came across a video that I wanted to make sure to um, at least tell our listeners about and, and broach the conversation. And this video was when you came out as um, bi in, what was it, 2011? 2012. 2012. Um, yeah. Whereas previously you had identified as lesbian. Um now, what yeah. really intrigued me about that is, um, you know, from some stories and friendships that I have, I've learned that many people who um, go from being labeled as or labeling themselves as gay or lesbian, um, once they sort of rediscover or reclaim um, their bisexuality, they're actually, in many cases, shunned from the prior community. Um, and... Um, as I've done more exploring about this, it oftentimes can see that the LBGTQ or LGBTQ um, plus questioning, like that it's really predominantly L and G. And people with um, other alternative sexualities are actually still needing to claim space within that movement. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what you've experienced yourself um, and what you've observed um, from other people? 
Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I think um, a lot of it comes down to the prevalence of a binary model of thinking of gender. And in fact, a binary model of life per se, you know, we're always in talking in extremes, you know, black and white, gay and straight, you know, and, um, you know, our politics, you know, everything is just a complete opposite. And um, so I think that within the LGBTQ community, um, by phobia and by stigma um, continues to prevail, um, even as we're starting to make, um, you know, make advances in promoting trans people within the conversation. Um, and I know that my personal story um, often raises questions of people con uh, confused, especially when I start off by saying, you know, I came to this country because I married a man, yeah? And um, and I, I have to throw in the term cisgender and bi, uh, sorry, cisgender and transgender in this conversation. So I'm gonna hope that your audience realizes that cisgender means that you're not transgender. It's an easy search on the internet to find the definition. Um, but my, you know, my story was I did not identify as anything other than straight until I started to come out to myself around the age of 26, 27. Um, so I had uh, married this, this man, this cisgender man. Um, the relationship was not healthy. Um, and so I knew I needed to leave. But then at the same time, I started to um, find attraction for women. And so I kind of came flying out the closet as a lesbian in 2004. And there was a long period of time where I never imagined that I would um, be in a relationship uh, with anyone but another woman and cisgender woman, because at that time, even though I knew trans people, I had trans friends, I wasn't thinking further ahead um, until I started to realize in 2011, actually, you know, the only reason I'm turning down a date with this guy is because I've labeled myself as a lesbian. And if I really do some deep dive analysis into myself, I think I'm actually attracted to that person, still attracted to women, but I want to go out date with that guy. So I had this period of time where I felt like I was living on the down low and I was terrified that somebody would find out that I was going on a date with a guy um, until finally um, I realized, oh, yeah, there's a B in LGBT. <laughs> it's been there a while. You know, maybe that's me. And and um, and so, yeah, then I realized, you know, I the, the definition of bisexual for me and most by people that I meet is that I have the capacity to be attracted to somebody who is similar to me or different from me. And so that really expands the whole concept of gender um, and sexuality and sex assigned at birth um, because it is a spectrum. And, um, you know, I, I basically have the capacity to be attracted to, to, to anyone else out there. It's the chemistry thing that I'm looking for. Yeah, well, in the video where you discussed about this, what one thread that I picked up was that um, it seemed to be that you were responding that there's something like unfair about being bisexual in the sense where um, you get you know, part of the benefit without necessarily, it was, it was, you know, you listed four, five or six different points. Um, you know, it's not yeah. that you were wanting to be greedy and sort of hog up the, the market of <laughs> available partners. And it's not that you were necessarily wanting to be extra promiscuous, but it was almost one of those things to where what, what I was seeing was it was like, um, what is it about this switch from lesbian to bisexual, where we have different ethical and normative connotations about that person. 
um, that's different than we might have for someone who was lesbian, um, especially, but I know also um, gay men get a lot of the um, ethical and sort of normative things. And so it, it sounded, um, it was really interesting to pull that aspect out because it went not so much about your identity, about, but about sort of the ethics of it or the normativity of it. Does that make sense? I think, yes, it does make sense. And um, the reason I made that video was because uh, many people had known me as an out lesbian advocating for LGBT rights. And so I really wanted to kind of document my position and my voice almost in like self-defense in some way, um, because I, I recently had a very interesting conversation uh, with three women who identify as lesbian. And um, we had a very... Um, open dialogue where they raised a lot of the stereotypes and the phobias um, that they have towards bi women in particular. Um, these stereotypes include the fact that they think that bisexual women, they could never date a bisexual woman because she's automatic, she's eventually going to cheat on them and leave them for a cisgender man. Um, they don't feel comfortable with bisexual women bringing their male partners into women's spaces. Um, the assumption is that bi people um, are quote unquote greedy because they not only do they have all the options of, of the dating pool, um, but they are polyamorous or non-monogamous. Um, the let me think of one more. Oh, that's right. Is like we had a long conversation about what they perceive as by privilege, and that by people and a by woman can choose to be with a man, and then therefore um, they're at less risk um, to as violence um, when they're walking down the street holding hands of their partner. And so I basically made this video to be able to take these stereotypes and misconceptions, if not myths, and turn them on their head and say, actually, none of these are true. Um, so statistically, studies show that bisexual people actually um, are face higher rates of violence. Um, they, their health care is poorer. They're more discriminated against in the workplace. Um, and in fact, they make up 52% of the lesbian, gay and bisexual population. So lesbians are 17, like one seven percent. Um, gay men are 31 percent and uh, bisexual people are 52 percent of the population. So um, our visibility um, is not as obvious because, you know, if we're seen with somebody of a similar gender, we're assumed to be gay. If we're seen as somebody of a different gender, we're assumed to be straight. Um, and, and so that's why, you know, within the LGB community, or within the LG community, um, we're kind of like put down as like not being quite gay enough. Like if you notice when a celebrity comes out, oftentimes it's the lesbian and gay celebrities that come out that are picked up by the national LGBT organizations to go be the spokespeople. If a bisexual celebrity comes out um, up until recent years or recent months, um, they've kind of been dismissed as, oh, we'll wait until they come out as gay and then we'll have them as a spokesperson. Um, so it, 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 it is very much prevalent. And I think that only in the last less than 12 months have I seen national LGBT organizations really try to, to, to make amends for this um, and end these stereotypes. Um, and I think to put the root of it, I go back to the binary model um, of how we're perceiving gender and sex and um, this, this massive spectrum, which is actually greater in proportion 
is dismissed. Yeah, I had no idea that it was 52%, right? And so as I was mentioning yep. with some of the dynamics of um, – of, of the community is like, we're not talking about like, you know, one and two people out of 10. We're talking like more than half the people, right. Are, are potentially yeah. facing this internal um, judging and shaming and sort of, you know, um, non-connection and so on and so forth. So that's huge. Exactly. And I'll give you the link so you can put the data up with you, but the data comes from the movement advancement project or map. Um, which um, since 2006 has been doing the data and the research on the LGBTQ community. And they found in their research, like 9 million Americans identify as LGBT. And without this data, it's very difficult to advocate for our equality. Uh, but what we need to do is really educate amongst the community um, that, you know, bi people exist and, um, and, uh, you know, we're the greatest proportion. Absolutely. And I'm going to tie in sort of an intersectional note because many of the um, issues that you've said as far as being not gay enough or too gay or things like that, actually people from different racial backgrounds will feel that same sort of thing too. And so there are certain ways of, there are certain ways in which you look, there are certain ways in which you talk, there are certain ways in which you act, there are certain identities um, that you're supposed to have. And if you're not in some sort of area, like, monolithic pre-described as sort of black or Asian or Native American, then you end up in this sort of like, well, you're kind of there, but not really. Like we're, we're not really there. Like you're either not dark enough or you're too dark. And so, um, and it's really many of the same tensions about this binary way of thinking. You could be one race in one way, right? Or you could be another race in that way, but you can't be on a spectrum, right? Even though, yeah. Life is a spectrum. There is no monolithic yep. culture or monolithic sort of racial identity. So I'll speak from sort of, you know, the black perspective there. There actually is no mo black monomyth, right? At the same time, yeah. um, that's what gets projected and judged against one way or the other, right? And so um, yeah. similar dynamics there. I think when we go into identity politics is that um, so much of the confusion um, rests just with either or thinking instead of both and, um, and fluid. So that's the other thing that I wanted to drop is there in there is that um, another feature from your video, and I believe I read it somewhere else is understanding that um, sexual preference and um, perhaps gender can be fluid and that um, there are different, there are different time slices in which, um, you know, you might be at different places on that perspective. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that though? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, for me, my, um, because I, ident when I identified as straight, I wasn't denying or lying to myself. I identified as straight. And then in those, that period of time when I identified as lesbian or gay, that was truly who I was at that time. Again, I wasn't like hiding anything. And then I later came out as bi. Um, I, from my personal experience and from talking to other people, um, many of us come out at different stages of our life um, in different ways. Um, we often have the narrative that if you're not straight, um, you know, and the predominant coming out is like coming out as gay and you know from, you know, the age of three and four and you've known all your life and you've been suppressing it, 
that's not what my experience has been. And I've been talking to a lot of young people lately, and I say young people, people in their 20s, and um, they're having a similar experience where they're coming out in their 20s as well. And just last week, I was, I was talking to this young woman who's like 27, and she was having a hard time finding books or videos or resources to be able to help identify her sexuality and her new coming out experience because everything she was finding was geared towards helping um, youth coming out. And of course, you know, that's necessary and needed, but this isn't a conversation that we're having quite so much. Um, and I also, you know, I think it, it does relate to gender as well. Like gender is different from sexuality, um, but there is some common overlap. And, um, you know, some people, know that their gender is different from the one that has been assigned to them um, at a very young age. And then some people don't have this coming out or realization till later in life. Um, but none of these experiences are right or wrong. They just are. Um, you know, and as we hear more stories of uh, transgender individuals, you know, some people are genderqueer or gender fluid, um, meaning that, you know, they don't express themselves into a binary model of gender, or some people's gender feels different to them at different types, times of day, even, you know, some people can feel one gender in the morning and then fluidly move into another and at night, you know, and I, I don't think we've seen so many of those stories, but, you know, from my experience in meeting people within the community, that's very real to them as well. So, I think whether it comes to gender, sexuality, ethnicity, race, religion, politics, like all the intersections that you're bringing up, I think all of them are on a spectrum. And um, I think that humanity needs to start thinking in a, in a spectrum as opposed to a binary. Yeah, well, it's kind of um, a callback to where I started the show in that um, there's a certain part of our makeup as rational creatures or as people who don't want to make a bunch of decisions all the time is that these labels that we have make it easier for us to associate in the world at, at you know, sort of the base level. It's like, oh, you're, you appear to be a woman. I'm just going to assume a whole construct of things about you. Right. And it's even, it's even right. more than, um, you know, your gender or your sexual appearance. It might be like, oh, you're a redhead. I'm also going to put a whole lot on you for being, a, you know, for being a redhead. Right. Um, right. and just the way, um, the way that we cut our hair, there's all sorts of things. Like I know having a military background, I can look at someone and say military, non-military, Right. And depending upon how their appearance, I'm like, oh, he was a Marine. Um, he was in the Army, Navy, Air Force. I'm not so sure sometimes because they blend together, but just different cues that we give each other. And then, of course, being a good judging creature, I will apply all sorts of stories to that person. Right. I'm like, oh, well, he was a Marine, so he did X, Y and Z. But I don't stop and think I'm like, wait a second. Um, there are band members in the Marine. Like you can be a Marine and play the tuba, right? But we don't think about right. that case. We think of, you know, sort of the ura like Marine. And, you know, same with the Army, same with the Air Force, same with things like that. And we, on the one hand, this is how our world is comprehensible and navigatable for us. Because if we had to stop in every moment that we met a new person and sort of go through the multi-dimensional spectrums of who they might be, it would be really hard to communicate and really hard to get anything going because the first thing would be like, well, here's who I am. Here's like, And there would be all these constructs that you'd have to unpack before we can say, um, mm -hmm. do you like your coffee black or with cream, <laughs> right? 
Um, mm-hmm. The trouble comes when like we use those narratives in conscious and unconscious ways um, to Mm -hmm. limit people's ability to be in connection with our communities and limit their opportunities and so on and so forth. So it's this weird thing being human, right? And that we can't function without the labeling sort of taxonomical system that our brain is Um, at the same time that that labeling taxonomical structure is what creates so much of the injustice and suffering in the world. Mm-hmm. No, and I'll first say that um, I realise that my um, English accent is earning me at least ten more IQ points than I really actually deserve <laughs> at this point. But it's like it's another example, isn't it? Like people have this judgment of me as soon as I open my mouth based on how I sound. You know, I've lived in this country nearly seventeen years, but if I've just arrived from an airport or I'm checking into a hotel, it's always been assumed that I've just had a transatlantic flight. Exactly. Um, ex- exactly. And you know, it's and it's even worse than that in the sense where you have a high English accent as opposed to like a Cockney accent, right? And if you had that one, we'd be like, oh, wow, like who is she? And it's just on the accent, right? Um, So yeah, it's all these stories that that we carry around with us. And, um, you know, it reminded me of a, I'm I'm probably going to get in a lot of trouble with this, right? Um, It was a a comedian on Last Comic Standing. Um, where he was talking yeah. about the stigma that all Hispanics or all Latinos were hardworking. And he's like, we're not all hardworking. Don't put that on me, right? He was basically frustrated because everywhere he went, people expected him to be hardworking and he was lazy. <laughs> and yeah. he's like, I can't just be lazy on yeah. my own, right? I have to like, and so it's just one of those things to where we, you know, it's even when you get a privileged um, assumption, that then creates a box yep. that you have to sort of weave in and out of. So what if you're, what if people assume you're super smart because you have an English accent and you're smiling and then all of a sudden it's like you feel like you have to live up yep. to something where you can't just be yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to be a whiny white woman, you know, complaining about her privilege by any means. Um, but I was, it was funny, like I was w- watching a diversity panel talking about the stigma of accents in the workplace. And it was funny that even these diversity experts were making the assumption that st- that the accents, you know, were Latin American or, you know, some other accent, forgetting that actually it goes in the opposite direction where you have the privilege accent as well. Um, and all of these things, I think, basically come down to in how you present yourself to the world and how the world sees you, you know. And psychologists, of course, like studies prove that we, we there's a use for stereotypes so that we can have mental models in order to have some kind of intuition about how to communicate with somebody else. Um, But what's getting away in the way is the unconscious and sometimes conscious bias. And so I think like being able to like take a step back and have like a broader perspective um, and be able to like just break down this kind of binary way of how we're seeing people present themselves with Again, regard you know, on, on all these dimensions of, um, you know, race in addition to gender and sexuality and so on and so forth, um, maybe can help advance us into being uh, more empathetic, respectful human beings. Um, and you know, I think yes, there's a lot of work to do in that area. But you know, uh, while I'm on the planet in this life, I'll keep trying my best. Yeah. Well, even. <laughs> Um, even in those moments where we may not be the most empathetic and we may not be the most, um, 
um, flexible thinking. I think learning to at least question one's assumptions and be like, oh, the way I'm understanding the situation is because I'm viewing this person this way. Um, is yeah. that one relevant? And how about I ask the person, right, what, what they want? And so, I mean, we often see this in um, when, you, when you go to diversity and inclusion conversations within organizations is that, um, you know, one of the first things that will happen, I've, I've experienced, is that they're like, oh, we need to have this diversity and inclusion initiative, and we're going to provide all these things for people who are from marginalized um, identities in a workplace. And so there's kind of like, we're going to do X and we're going to do Y and we're going to do Z. And oftentimes I want to say, well, did you actually ask them what they wanted, right? Or did you assume that, um, you know, having um, a Black History celebration during February at the workplace is what your African-American workers wanted, right? Right. Um, Because that may not be what they wanted. They may not have wanted that to be the issue. Um, and so I, I think there's just learning to, even when you become aware of these labels and stereotypes to not go mm. immediately into the sort of solution fixing, like, I know what we need to do now, as opposed to saying, oh, the world mm. is different than I thought it might've been. How about mm-hmm. the people who live in a different world, co-create what that, what the experience should be, as opposed to just receive yet another experience from, from the dominant yeah. culture. Yeah, I think that's why in, in the workplace it's so important to have the employee resource groups um, and, and, and involve them in, and let them take the lead in, in you know, initiatives um, to make a workplace more inclusive. Um, yeah, completely. Okay. I'm going to pull back something because I kind of, you know, jumped over the transmilitary thing. And what I was really trying to do was overlay sort of a timeline of your personal evolution and um, engagement and authenticity with the work that you did in transmilitary. So um, roll us back in time to what really got you thinking about um, stories about trans people in the U.S. military. Yeah. And in fact, before I roll back, I'll quickly say something that for me, the in one of the initiatives that I see in helping people see the world in a spectrum as opposed to a binary is through the personal stories of people in the military. And the reason I see that is because the military is the most gender binary workplace you will find. Um, And so I feel that by looking and living and feeling the real lived experience of people in the military, um, we are can make we can make steps forward in helping people rethink the binary of gender. Um, I'm hope and you're nodding, and I'm hoping that as a veteran yourself that could make sense to you. Yeah, I can unpack so many different stories um, about this, but that's, I mean, I'll be brief, but, but one of the things, for instance, when I was a military leader is I was really frustrated around the gender normalization around jobs, especially the fact that sort of female soldiers get um, traditionally, um, or, you know, sort of traditional female-oriented work 
and the men got, you know, male oriented work. So for instance, when there was, um, kitchen patrol or when you were, when there's any sort of thing around the chow hall, it was like more often than not, the women ended up in sort of the cleanup position where the men were out and did something. I was like, this is fundamentally not the way this is going to roll. Right. Um, and so it was really a lot of conversations with my, my junior sergeants would be like, you know what, we're not going to make it a big thing, but this is not going to happen. Right. And so, um, yes, we, we are predominantly men. Right. Um, and that doesn't mean that we're going to do things just this way because of that. Right. We need to be looking out. But one of the more challenging issues was seeing the way in which future leaders were groomed and how unintentionally exclusive it was towards women. So for instance, um, being a military officer, you might know this, but other people don't, you get assigned a driver, um, or you get assigned basically someone, a, a staff person to help do a lot of the different things while you're doing your job. Now, it turns out that that position is one of the most intense learning positions that ends up grooming future leaders. Okay. Um, but because of certain needed rules around fraternization, it was especially challenging to be a male officer and have a female um, driver, have a female task or staff person assigned to you for this reason. When you are going out on mission or when you're in a convoy and you ended up having to sleep with your co-driver, you ended up having a male officer yeah. sleeping with a junior female soldier. And that creates a lot of appearance of impropriety and just there's a history of that not going well, right? But at the same time, you have this tension. How do you provide that opportunity and groom those future leaders in that same way um, without saying, you know what, this is against regs or this is against appearance and so on and so forth. So talking through those issues um, with soldiers and, you know, making choices around how I was going to have females at, as my staff or as my driver and working that out was a small way. Um, but I still, I think at a unit level way of, of saying like, look, we have to be more intentional and think about what's happening downstream because of these choices we keep making. Um, and you're right. It's very much, not only is it, um, very, very, um, male dominant, um, cisgender male dominant to be clear. It's also, um, very, very Anglo dominant as well, right? Is that there's not a lot of room. Yeah. I mean, the entire appearance is, um, really set up for white men. And so um, if you are a black woman and you have to put your hair in certain ways, it could be more challenging, right, than, than other different things. And so I think, it's, I think it's right that it's a great lens to see both where our society is and where it was. Um, but I mm -hmm. also think that um, the pure scope of the military and the size of it is such that if you want to affect social change, it's one of the best places to do so. Um, because when we look yeah. at this sort of civil rights um, advances in the United States, they very much track what's going on in the military. So in the 40s or yeah. 50s, um, when desegregation happened, major step for um, – for non-whites in the military. Um, and even just recently in the last few years, now all combat arms jobs in the army are available for women, which means that if you look at, again, downstream effects, when you look at who becomes generals and who becomes the decision makers, they come from the combat arms in the army. So that's infantry, armor, field artillery, um, and cavalry, right? Or traditionally where we mm -hmm. pull senior leadership from. 
if women are excluded from those things, then they'll never actually be at that point, or not that they'll never, just have to work their tails off to get in the door. So mm-hmm. just that one simple move in the military advances gender equality um, that I think that we have experienced in our society has downstream effects for society at large. What happens when girls who are six can then see themselves being a leader in the army or a leader in the military, as opposed to that forever being excluded because she's just a girl. Okay. So I went on a long rant there, but yes. So no, but it's exact, but which means like you've just, that's the beginning of my case for why I would, care about trans people in the military because I am somebody who cares about all human rights and I'm living in at the time that I'm alive LGBTQ rights happen to be like my top issue and so why not um, work to elevate the stories and the rights of trans people in the military Uh, the way I got into the work was because as an LGBTQ advocate I'd been um advocating for the repeal of donor state So health. give us a timestamp so that, that we know where this is relative to um, where you are in the world. So I, I had come out as a gay in 2004, and I was volunteering for a national LGBT organization. And the main issue during the next few years was repealing Donors Don't Tell. And so I would do speaking engagements and fundraising and, you know, lobbying and that kind of stuff to end the ban on LGB people. So, in the for real quick, However, you and I know about Don't Ask, Don't Tell, ooh. but catch our listeners up um, with the short story of, okay. of um, DADT. <laughs> DADT, or Don't Ask, Don't Tell, was um, implemented by um, President Clinton, Bill Clinton, um, and it was basically a law that said you can't ask anyone if they're lesbian, gay, or bisexual, and you cannot come out as lesbian, gay, or bisexual. I will add, that most of the time people just say lesbian and gay and they forget to say bisexual, but that's a whole other story. Um, But DADT was a a law that needed to be repealed. um, And it was in 2010 and it went into effect in 2011. Now, because I had been doing this work as a part of a national LGBT organization, I just made the stupid assumption that included trans individuals. I hadn't really thought about it. And so it was after that repeal that I learned that actually this was about sexual orientation. It was not about gender identity. And so lesbian, gay, and bi people could serve, but trans people were still banned. Now, the reason they were banned was different from DADT because DADT was a law that needed to be repealed through Congress. The ban against trans individuals was a number of outdated, antiquated policies and procedures that were still written into the Department of Defense regulations, um, including um, the old definition of what it meant to be transgender. So DSM or Diagnostic Statistical Manual 3 said that being transgender was a psychological disorder, whereas the updated version, DSM-5, said that it was a treatable condition. Well, if you have a disorder, regardless of what it is, you can't serve. But if you have a treatable condition, you can. So all they needed to do was like update these regulations. Um, so I want to so, yeah, you know, pause there real quick. Sure. I, hate to, yeah. I hate to interrupt, but I want to roll back because this is the DSM-5 that says that being transgender was a treatable condition. 
Okay. Yeah. So just pause and let that sink yes. in. It's a treatable condition as opposed to, yes. um, you know, some sense of, of normality or some sense of normativity in that way. So hated to interrupt there, but it, it's, I still wanted to show where we are in the conversation around um, trans, um, transgender. Yeah. So, so that was updated as a treatable condition, but the military just hadn't updated its records. So on paper, you could get discharged simply for being transgender. So trans people were essentially living under a different version of don't ask, don't tell, because even though they risked discharge, studies found that there were more than 15,000 people who identified as trans who are currently serving. Plus, trans people are twice as likely to serve than their cisgender counterparts. So it wasn't that trans people weren't serving, they were, and they were serving effectively. Um, they were doing the same jobs, like they, you know, they're sacrificing their lives um, for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and yet they were being denied those freedoms, both internally and externally, to the military. So it was around like the 2011, 2012 time period that I came to understand this myself. Um, I already had friends who were trans, um, some of whom were in the military. And that fall, um, there were a couple of friends who were going to be heading up a advocacy organization to help end the ban. And so it was October of 2012 that we kind of decided that they were going to be doing their work. And I was going to start a media project to help elevate their stories into the media as a way of raising attention to the issue. So the first couple of years, I did a couple of short videos with some friends that went online to different platforms. And then the beginning of 2015 is when serendipity um, kind of helped me out. And um, a friend who was now working at the New York Times had heard about the project and the Times had decided they wanted to do a series on transgender Americans and they wanted to include people in the military. So they commissioned me to make a short film they teamed me up with my co-directors, Gabe Silverman and Jamie Coughlin as side-by-side -side studios. And together we made the short film Transgender at War and in Love. Um, the film became um, a great success, like one of the times most viewed. And last year, 2016, we were nominated for an Emmy. And it's because the story is so powerful. And we have such a strong relationship with the individuals in the film that I think that just kind of seeps through. Um, and... We got to, we carried on filming and we filmed like the secret meetings that happened where trans people, um, there was like a group of like five or six individuals that would go inside the Pentagon and meet with top brass officials to share their stories. And we had the privilege of, share, of filming them before and afterwards. And so now we're kind of making a feature documentary. And it really it was like a perfect storm of three things. Number one, it was the advocacy and the storytelling of people going into the Pentagon it was the research that was being done by an organization called the Palm Center in California. And then third, it was the media storm, you know, our film and other pieces that came to light. So eventually the Secretary of Defense ended the ban in June of last year, June 30th, 2016. And thank goodness he did in the nick of time before um, the presidential election, because now America's military is the largest employer of trans people. And yet you can get fired for being trans in 32 states. So one of my favorite sayings is, so if you can go have a pee in Kandahar, then surely you can use the toilet in Target. 
But uh, yeah, that's that's how the advocacy continues. Yeah. Well, and, and this kind of goes back to what we were saying in this interplay between things that happen with the DOD and things that happen in our large society, because um, again, civilians normally don't think about this, but the DOD is a federal agency that that the rules of the of the federal agencies in many ways can transcend what's happening in the states, right? And so you might be in, say, Alabama as a trans person, but actually be able to find employment um, with the military, you know, um, because of the different posts and things available there, where you may not be able to find employment otherwise. You're protected in a way because of the federal policies that you would not otherwise be. And that creates a halo effect and that we start to start wondering, like, wait a second, like, this is incompatible with who we are. And, and again, I, I think another real reason to tell the military stories, and I realize how biased I am being a veteran, right, um, is that mm-hmm. um, these are the people who are sacrificing major parts of their life to defend and advance freedoms for people they don't even know. Right. So these are and, you know, I find it striking what you said is that trans people are two times as likely um, to serve than their um, non-trans counterparts. Right. Um, So this means that the the very freedoms and, um, you know, that that we enjoy are advanced and safeguarded by people that at a state level and sometimes at a community level we reject. It's striking. It's super, super striking when you think about it at that level. Um, and that's regardless of where your stance is on uh, pro-war or pro-peace and things like that, right? It's just the, the brute fact. And I think, again, intersectionality, we often see higher rates of service in um, people from um, minority backgrounds and, and from the poor than we do see otherwise. And so these are the people our society, I think, honors the least, but at least on mm-hmm. that front are doing the most. It's very odd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. I echo everything you're saying. It's, it's why I'm doing the work. Well, so you made it, right? <laughs> so you're, you're being nominated for, an, for an Emmy. You've got all this stuff going on. Success, right? You can, you, no. can, you can put a book in it and you can, you know, end up in Hawaii sipping on Mai Tais, right? No, I don't feel that at all. <laughs> the struggle is real. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, because one would think, right? Yeah. This is this is the journey that we're on. We pick these unusual paths. Sometimes they work. Yeah. Other times they don't. But then, yeah. you know, luck and charm and grit happens. And then all of a sudden you're hugging Cory Booker and you're getting nominated for an Emmy, right? <laughs> Oh, you saw that. I love that Cory Booker hug. Oh, my God. Yeah, so Fiona has made it, right? (laughs) No, no, no. Because so um, I um – I, my ultimate ambition is to be the white bisexual the Oprah. White, okay, so I'm writing that down. Fiona Dawson wants to be the white bisexual <laughs> no. Oprah, right? Please don't put that as a headline anywhere because it's really bad if you read it. I think it's but, wonderful. But- um, no, because like – In 2010, it's all Oprah's fault that I'm doing this. And hopefully Oprah will hear this story one day. Because in 2010, Oprah was launching her own network. And she had this competition to win your own show. And I was at a point in my life where I had a satisfying job, but it wasn't moving my soul. And I just really want to change the world on a massive level. And um, so I thought if I could do anything, I would host a TV show where I share positive ways people are working to end stigma and discrimination against anyone anywhere. 
And Oprah had this competition to win your own show. So I made this video, which hopefully you haven't found because it's really embarrassing, of my demo to win Oprah's show. And you had to like present your con the, the, um, the context of the show and present yourself. And I just want to show the positive ways people are working to make the world better because so many times we're shown the negative dark side, which is not inspiring at all. It makes you want to turn off and tune out. So I filmed a guy in India who rescues girls from brothels. And it's this incredible story where you learn about sex trafficking through the lens of somebody that's saving girls. And it's like really inspiring. So, um, I did, I didn't win the competition. So I didn't win my show with Oprah, but at the end of the competition, I had a choice. I could either like, all right, go back to a regular job or I could like go on this path to make, to get my own TV show. And I chose the latter because I felt like, um, you know, I'm only going to live, this is my life right now. And I would rather try um, and find out that it's not going to happen than just wish I could do this, but never try. And that, like, I've got this quote on standby because this quote inspired me was don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And that was Howard Thurman who said that. And I just felt like, yeah, this is like what makes me alive is interviewing, meeting, inspiring people, being on camera and now even being behind camera, like directing, like anything, like just being able to like get these awesome, gorgeous stories out there. Um, and so then I ended up like moving to New York and realizing that, you know, I wasn't going to get my show picked up like that. And it was quite surprising. And, and, um, and then I started trans military. And so now I'm at the point where I'm seven years into this, um, journey or mission of becoming the white bisexual Oprah. <laughs> And an overnight success takes 10 years. I've got like three years left. So what happens at year 11? <laughs> like, and yes, okay. We got nominated for an Emmy last year, which is huge. And um, I'm aiming to get nominated for another award with a feature film um, that will come out this fall. Um, but at what point do you feel satisfied or feel like you've reached success? And I think that um, it's, I've gone through some really, really challenging times in the last few years, really low times. And I don't really feel like I'm much of a success. So in order to feel like you are doing something productive and useful with your life, I've come to realize, look, I've just got to appreciate the daily moments and the hidden experiences that don't get on camera and the amazing conversations that you have with people and, and the ripple effects and the ripple effects that you will never see. And, um, we, no one is better than anyone else. Like I have to practice what I preach. You know, if I really believe in full equality, then I have to realize that we're all successful every single day. And, um, okay. If I don't end up being the white bisexual Oprah, that doesn't mean I failed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's so many questions I want to ask so many questions. Um, but I'm curious. So, um, yeah. what is at least one way that you'll know you're going to be there? Like one thing you'll see in the world. I actually, okay. I might be contradicting myself. That's now, okay. We're human. But I actually feel like if I do nothing else, I know that I did a significant thing or as part of a significant team and it wasn't just me by any means, but it was a group of people 
that we changed the U.S. military together. And that's that pretty, is pretty awesome. awesome. So, and I feel like I reached a point where actually like no one else has to know it. Like, I think that we all have these hidden successes that no one, ha- no one will ever see. And so um, I guess today I'm relatively at peace. Ask me next week and I'll be completely changed. No, uh, you have to be consistent about oh. your emotions at all times, Fiona. You can't, there are no take backs. <laughs> Um, so I'm curious because I put you in a very tense spot. And the reason I want to hang out here for just a minute is again, the story we have about, um, being productive and flourishing and really winning is that you get to that point and you sort of, you know, sort of the Olympic stand, you raise up the trophy and then we don't, I think, have a story that follows that, right? What happens after the trophy, what happens after all of this? And I think, um, you know, I was talking to, ooh, who was I talking to? It might have been Jonathan Fields um, last week. But um, so a lot of Olympic athletes, when they win their, um, their uh, medals, actually after that go through bouts of really severe depression, right? And it's really curious. Um, but I think part of what it is – I haven't won a medal, so I don't know, but I think I've done other things. So I, I think what it is, is that you lose that drive. You lose that thing that you were chasing for the whole time and you have to reorient your world around like, okay, it's, I have to do, I have to exist in the world differently than I have before, but I only know how to exist in that world. So I wanted to kind of hang out there because I'm really wondering like, where's your hunger right now? Like what's really... Um, waking you up in the morning to like, um, not, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the vanity and there's anything wrong with the shows, but really what's that fire that, that you're feeling right now that's driving you forward? I would love to share a bit of background before I answer that immediate question, because actually I did feel the same way. Um, you know, I have set very high expectations and goals for myself, but last year I significantly did achieve some great things. Um, you know, Emmy nomination being one hugging and a couple Corey of Booker. other pieces of recognition. Hugging Cory well, hugging Cory Booker okay. happened in 2012. Um, but then, you know, in 2015, I was um, awarded by the White House as an LGBT artist champion of change. Um, and then last year, I got to shake hands with President Obama, and I was nominated for an Emmy. And collectively, we ended the ban on trans service. So that was like some really significant highs. And I did go through, I would say. A Fiona Dawson version of depression <laughs> after that um, feeling like it was such an enormous success and relief to think we actually achieved that, that I began to feel like I didn't have a place anymore and that there was no point in me doing any work or like, you know, so now what happens? And of course, Gabe, Jamie and I were continuing to make the feature documentary, but they need a documentary needs funding and it needs a platform and it needs an audience. It needs all these things. And everywhere I looked and asked, it felt like everyone was just saying, no, like there's no point. Like what's the need you've ended the ban. Like this doesn't need to happen. And like trying to get my compelling drive and reason for why this needed to happen just felt like it was going nowhere. Um, and then the election last year significantly affected my state of being as well. And I felt like, God, you know, I've been doing all this work and, but yet it didn't make a difference because we elected that person to be president. And, and so the beginning of this year, 
I really have suffered and thinking, well, should I just give up and go get a normal job? Like, should I just go see if I can get hired by a corporation and, and just have like a regular kind of life? Um, but somehow I've managed to pull through it. And I think it's because recently we have had a new opportunity open up to finish the feature film. And so now it's, we are on track to get it released this year. And the, my new drive to get back to your specific question, what drives me today is realizing that this October, I will have invested five years of my life on this project, but not only zero pay, but negative pay. Like I've lost money. I've invested my savings in this. So it's not like I'm getting financially compensated, but I know that these stories of these amazing individuals are changing the world and are changing hearts of minds. I don't, it's their stories that are making the difference. And so if I've invested five years to make the damn thing, then I'm going to give it at least one year to go out and promote it and reach communities that wouldn't otherwise watch it. So my current crazy idea is instead of, you know, going back to live in New York or maybe going to LA, um, I'm thinking of buying a caravan and living in it with my dog and traveling the US screening the film and going to military bases. And like all these people that we're now talking about in the media that voted for Trump because they didn't feel like they were being heard or are holding some kind of stigma, stereotype, bias, um, or even, you know, or bigotedness against people. I want to go have an in-person conversation with them. I'm not going to rely that they're going to find my film on Netflix or they're going to find some video that I'm going to post on Facebook or YouTube. I'm going to go take it to them and have a conversation with them. And that is what's driving me right now is that I have this project that my amazing co-directors have, have made um, it to the highest standard and quality. So I have a tool. I have something that has been made with love and is unique and I'm going to go use it. And so I'll do that for a year and then we'll just see what happens. And, you know, maybe by then I'll have another opportunity to make a living or, or I'll try and apply to a corporation again, see if they'll hire me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> as you were talking about living in an RV, um, you had a very interesting <laughs> smile when you said that, right? It, it's, um, but I just wanted to sort of mirror back that I was like, that's totally something you would do. Like, it's not at all unusual from like what I've seen. Like it's, it's, I know it's an atypical sort of non-conventional way of doing it, but I'm like, that's completely consistent with you. So yeah. Why don't you do that? It sounds so crazy. And I feel a certain level of shame in saying it. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess like I tried telling my, like my dad is in the UK, right? And I told my, like, I started to tell my dad this idea and I, and I told him one, cause I knew I was going to get a reaction and I just fancied a laugh. And like I said, daddy, I'm going to, I'm going to buy a caravan and live in it. And I couldn't even finish the sentence. And he's like, no. Yeah. And so, I mean, different relationship, but I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm like, that sounds pretty awesome. Go do that. Don't I you think it's like, you know, I might as well make the most of living in this country and like, What's the point in like being stuck in just a couple of states? Like I need yeah, to Yeah, why go not meet be location everybody. fluid too? <laughs> exactly. 
Exactly. It's like completely suits my uh, who I am. Right? That's how, that's how I'm seeing it, I'm the, and I'm I'm, I'm saying that with with I'm with not, full sort of like appreciation of that, right? Not just like oh, that's totally something Fiona would do, but like no, no, it's actually consistent but, with with the trajectory yeah. that you've created for yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so you're validating this idea of. I, I suppose we can look at it that way. You know, I'm, I'm always I'm always interested when I talk to people to see what ways in which we build the prisons around ourselves to keep us from doing the things that, like, you had that sort of five or six year old sort of feeling, of smiling, like I, I, I get to do this sort of thing. And I'm like, but why not? Why? What's whence the cage? Right? Whence the cage? Right? right. Um, so that's just all I wanted to mirror back in that. Yeah. Thank you. No. No, because I mean, because the why not is people coming out with you. Well, that's just not what you do. And there's a stigma about living in a caravan and that's completely reckless and it could be dangerous. And no, you know, you're meant, I, you're meant to have the house with a white picket fence. And I feel like actually my entire life I have been kicking the house with the white picket fence. So can I maybe I can come visit you on on the west coast and like part the caravan? I would love for you to come visit us on the west coast. I would love, and I'd have to talk to Michelle about it to have you present some of this to the Wayfinding Academy and to the students there. There's so many different things, right? Um, There's so many different ways in which that can become real. Um, But of course, it starts with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank thank you. I would love that. We're gonna make Um, it happen. So step one, get an RV. Step yeah. two, yeah. Um, being the white bisexual Oprah. Um, <laughs> after that, we'll figure it out. <laughs> we'll figure it out. We'll see. I'm going to live till I'm 91 and I'll be 40 this year. So, you know, I've got a few You've years left. You've got a few years left. So um, we've talked about a lot today. It's been such a thrilling conversation. I'm so excited to meet you and so grateful for the work that you're doing, not only for um, the military service members who have been in the shadows, but for our society at large. So thank you so much for that. Um, Before we go, if there were one sort of message Mm. that you would want to leave our listeners with, um, what would that be? If you know what makes you feel alive, go do it. Wonderful. That's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say more, but maybe I don't need to, but that's seriously, just let go of the fear. Go do it. Um, I appreciate you so much for being on the show today. And um, I look forward to seeing what you create in your RV and on the interwebs. (laughs) Sounds great. You know, it will be on the interwebs. (laughs) All right, everyone. So you heard it from Fiona. Um, If you know what makes you come alive, go do it. And so between now and the next episode of the Productive Flourishing Podcast, really sink into that and remember you can take a small step towards doing that. And a small step today is better than a big step that never happens. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, We'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.